Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we begin Season 3 of Bible Worm by going all the way back to the beginning of creation as told in Genesis 1-1 through 2-4a. We talk about the amazing generosity of God who not only creates, but beckons forth the creativity of others, humans, animals, and the earth. We discuss the creation of humankind in God's image and ask what it means to have dominion over a creation that God has called good. And we marvel at the Sabbath command, which sanctifies time and gives us divine permission to rest. Welcome to season three, everybody. Let there be Bible worm. Hey, Amy, welcome to Bible Worm Season 3. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1. That was I've awesome. I've been practicing that. Yeah, no, I can tell. <laughs> All summer long, yeah. baby. Do you like look in the yeah. mirror and like practice? Or do you just, I guess you don't need a mirror if you're just on no, a podcast. I have a, I have an outfit I put on. I have a whole like outfit. So I look more like I should be the voice of God. Yeah, that's oh, I thought ah, I didn't realize you were God. I thought you were like, <laughs> what's that dude's name? You know the guy that says the things on the, like, come on down. Yeah. You're the next Johnny. Contestant. Was that his name? No, Bob Barker was his name. No, Bob Barker's the host. Johnny is the come on down guy. Oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Anywho, so welcome to <laughs> season three of Bible. Worm. Can you believe we're already in season three? It seems like we just started this thing. Last week and also like 20 years ago. It does. Well, you know, we you had a New Year's resolution that we should talk more. And that is exactly how that, that happened. Yeah. Having a Bible podcast. And now we talk all the time. We do. Yeah. So we haven't talked in like two months because we've been on hiatus. And so it seems like our whole relationship is Bible worm these days. But that's cool. That's that's cool. <laughs> that's cool that's good yeah, yeah that's good we'll take it that's good we'll take, we'll take it. it we'll take it we'll yeah, take yeah. it yeah yeah we bit be- we begin again at the beginning we do at the very beginning it's a uh it's a very good place to start how does that go begin at the very that, beginning that right. oh yeah. copyright <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're beginning we always begin at the beginning but we never begin at the very beginning. We always begin at, so far in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, which is the Garden of Eden, that, that creation story. This year, we actually get to start at the very, very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in That's the beginning right. is the actual words. This is so exciting. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, we've talked about the creation every, you know, September uh, since we started doing this. But this time, it's a little bit of a different conversation. Yeah. All right. So today we are in Genesis chapter one, reading chapter one, one through two, four, a, the first creation story as it has come now to be known. I'm reading in the NRSV and I'm assuming you're in the new JPS. 
I am in the new JPS. Is there any, I know, okay, I know this is the beginning of the beginning, but is there any background we need to offer for this story or should we just start reading the story? That's a fair question. What background would you like to give, Amy? Okay, here's here's my like background on one foot, really quick background. Yeah, yeah. So the biblical text has two creation stories. This one is generally thought to be written by the P source, the priestly source, yeah. who's really interested in ritual and structure and boundaries and formalism. And it's the same author who's really interested in the tabernacle yeah. and sort of the creation of, of the temple. So that's one thing to sort of keep in mind. And the writer of Leviticus, right? Of a lot of Leviticus, of, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The other thing that comes to mind for me is is whether there's any ancient Near Eastern context we should offer or... Well, here's what comes to mind for me. (laughs) There are several ancient Near Eastern creation stories that are a story of sort of overcoming primordial chaos, but they always end in creating a temple. And the temple is often placed on top of this like stone that like all the chaotic waters are pushed down into the earth and the temple is on top of the stone. So like if you move the temple, they might pop back out again. Yeah. And I just think that's a really interesting background to have in mind during some of this this story where we also start with this primordial chaos but then things take a little bit of a different turn they do yeah they do take a little bit of a different turn the story you most often hear this genesis one compared to is the enuma elish Mm -hmm. in the babylonian tradition where marduk kind of triumphs over the chaos goddess uh, the saltwater goddess tiamat and -hmm. becomes the the ruler of all the gods Okay, so here we are then in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and picking up in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness God called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is in this translation, the NRSV, that first bit is sort of set as a temporal clause in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Mm -hmm. The old sort of English, I guess it's the King James, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period. The earth Mm -hmm. was formless and void. Those are so different. Can you talk about the difference that, like, what difference does it make in your mind? Well, in my mind, it's a difference between this idea of, like, creation from nothing. Like, in the beginning, the first thing that happened was God created the heaven and the earth. Yeah. As opposed to this idea that there was something. There was some kind of formless and void something. And when God began to create, this is what that looked like. So this suggests, the NRSV's translation suggests that there was sort of a watery chaos, tohu vavohu in the Hebrew, yeah. which was there before God started doing anything. Is that, is that what you mean? Yes. Whereas yep. the old King James sort of leans into a understanding of creatio ex nihilo, the, I mean, which is a Christian doctrine in most Christian traditions anyway, uh, that God created out of nothing. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about which of those we ought to prefer? 
Yes. I think we <laughs> ought to prefer not creation from nothing. Yeah. I mean, I think both in terms of the the Hebrew syntax, I think is yeah. for me seems pretty suggestive that it's it's when God began to create. Also, if you look at two four B, the second story, mm-hmm. it also starts with that sort of that kind of temporal clause. Yeah, on the day that the Lord God made, yep. And there are some a- other ancient Near Eastern creation stories that also start with that when God began to create. So I, I really think the weight the weight of it is behind that idea. I think that's right. And that causes all kinds of theological problems if your theology starts from the idea that God created out of nothing. And that you know that's not our job on a Bible Worm podcast to sort out all those theological issues. But it is something to kind of pay attention to. If there was stuff that was there, the raw matter of creation— has its mm-hmm. existence sort of outside of God's creative activity, maybe. I mean, it really, I think it sets up this framing for creation being much more about like triumph over chaos and yeah. creating order and space for life to flourish within this pre-existing stuff, which for me is actually a much more compelling theology of, you know, it's, to think about what there was before and how we have to live our lives in a way that, I don't know, presses against forces of darkness and chaos that that are there, that are kind of baked in. Yeah. No, I also, I love that. And the idea that they're, like the world constantly wants to return to chaotic, its chaotic state. Mm-hmm. And so God's yeah. basically, the, the nature of Godness is to fend off the, the power of, of chaos trying to reassert itself and keep everything organized and and moving the way it should. And, and then thinking about humankind's participation in that process and all of those sorts of things get opened up in this in this text in, in a really interesting way. Yeah, yeah. So we're sort of imagining then on this interpretation that when God starts to create, it's dark and watery, and mm-hmm. there seems to be some kind of a wind from God that's moving over the waters. And then God creates first by speaking, let there be light, and there was light. And then by separating, so once the light is there, God then separates light and darkness. So speaking yeah. and separating, those seem to be the the kind of the modes by which God creates in this text. Any thoughts about that sort of speaking creation into being? That's such an that's such an interesting question. You know, when I when I was reading through the creation story this time around, for some reason I was really struck with the idea of God as an artist. Yeah. And so now thinking of like the speaking the speaking aspect of artistry, I'm picturing like a production, like a director, a I'm not really answering your question, but I know <laughs> <laughs> it's so but interesting. But I think it's a I mean, I think it's a it's a really interesting I don't know. It's a really interesting image to me. To me, this, you know, we've read the last two years, the Genesis 2 story where God's like down in the muck, getting God's hands dirty and like fashioning human beings out of clay. This is like God, like I can't picture where God even is in this story, right? It's like God is beyond or outside of or all throughout or something. And then the speaking and then whatever there is responds to God's voice. It's such an interesting like, when God speaks, like things do, you know, yeah. there's this kind of responsiveness of creation or something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I like that a lot. And I think that's really true. I mean, you can't even quite picture that God has a body, whereas in the other story, God's like walking around in the garden. (laughs) Now, here for the first time, we get God calling things good. And this is going to be a repeated theme, as you know, throughout this text. Here, it's the light that's called good. And so I don't know if that says anything about like the thing that God created was light and God calls the created thing good. God does not call the darkness good, which I don't know if that has anything at all to do with anything. But what do you make of this, the notion that God is calling things good and what God is calling good here? First, I want to underscore your sort of point about darkness. Like, I think this is, I think the darkness they're describing is not just the absence of light. Like, this is, it, it feels to me like a the dark, chaotic force that existed before. And so that's being sort of pressed to the side. And I don't know, I'd always thought of it as like the differentiation between those two things as good. But you're right, it says God saw that the light was good. Yeah. What do you make of that? I don't really know. And I, I mean, I will, I, I should say up front that I get really uncomfortable, as I'm sure you do as well, in this sort of like light and dark and good and not good and the mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. racial way that that yeah. can be and has been applied. And I'll just yeah. say, I don't really know how to avoid that in the reading of this text. And so I, I just want to name that <laughs> that reality and, yeah. and the discomfort of it. I mean, the way that I read this is that the things that are there before God starts to create, God is not calling those things good. God is calling good Mm -hmm. the things, the order that God brings, the things that God introduces Mm -hmm. into creation, Mm -hmm. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean the things that were there before were bad. It just means they weren't. (laughs) <laughs> they weren't good, right? I mean, it really, it reminds me again of this like artist image that yeah. you sort of do something and then you step back and look at it. Oh, that was good. And are like, it, that, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I like that thing I did. Yeah. All right. So the end of the first day, we have, we have light and darkness that have been separated now into day and night. My students always notice that we have day and night here, but we don't have the sun and the moon until the fourth day. Mm-hmm. And so- you know, we're we're in we're in some other realm than like scientific description of how For sure. the universe works. <laughs> Is there anything else we should say Indeed. about that? I mean, I actually was wondering if if there's a Christian reading of this, a Christian interpretation of this text that has the creation of the light as I don't know something Christian. Well, yeah. So I mean, there is a certainly there's a Trinitarian reading of this text, and so. You know, the light is not the first place that one would go. You would probably think of creator God, spirit as the wind hovering over the waters, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. word spoken by God as Jesus, who is going to be called the word in John. mm -hmm. But I, but that's, that text in John also uses the idea of the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome Mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's an easy connection. And maybe the author of John actually is making that connection to the light here related mm-hmm. to the uh, mm-hmm. to, to the Christ figure in some way. I mean, the Jewish reading of it is is that there's some sort of like primordial light that that is too overpowering for living creatures. And so it's sort of a light that will come in contact with again, you know, in the world to oh, come. Yeah. But it winds up being tucked away and can't can't coexist with the creatures. Oh, I see. So in that reading, then the light that we experience 
as, is not this is light. not that light. That light actually mm-hmm. does come from the sun. The light that we the light yeah, that I we that that reading. Mm-hmm. yeah the light that we experience during the daytime is sunlight, whereas there is the this primordial light that's created right here. But we mm-hmm. don't. Oh, I love that. I had not heard that tradition. There are seriously so many <laughs> Jewish interpretations and stories based on this chapter. Like we could easily, and you'll kill me, so we won't do this, but we could spend an hour talking about these five verses if I told you all the stories. Yeah. There's so, there's so much. Another day. I, I hear a special episode right there in the special works. Special episode. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we need to move on from day one, and I we're gonna move a little more quickly. Like day that yeah. first thing is just so fascinating, and there's so many issues <laughs> that arise there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so here I'm gonna read uh, days two and three. And God said, "Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters." So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Okay, so on day two, we've got all this just watery mess. And so God puts a dome there. So now there's water above the dome, water Mm -hmm. below the dome. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? So that I mean, so it it's it says in the translation that the water was called that the the sky was called sky. Yeah. But in Hebrew, the word for water is ma'im, and the water for heavens, the word that's used here is shemaim. Yeah. There really is a is an understanding that like the sky is blue because it's water that's over like a contact lens kind of yeah. structure, and it rains because the water comes through. Like we're it we're just in this little bubble. Yeah. Of watery chaos yeah i describe it to my students as like a snow globe but backwards Mm. right (laughs) so instead of like a little globe of water you know out in the air it's a little globe of air like surrounded by water on all the sides yeah yeah the word dome there rakia in hebrew refers to like a thin like metal hammered bowl so I mean, mm-hmm. which is not to say that the author necessarily thought there was a metal bowl in the sky, although maybe, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like, that's the kind of the metaphor, like as close as you can get to like, how do you describe what that is? It's like a, like a metal plate um, curved that's been placed there separates, that separates the waters. Yeah. So now above the dome is water, below the mm-hmm. dome is water. And mm-hmm. then on day three, you get the gathering of the waters. So- all that water under the dome has now been pulled down, I guess, into the seas so that the land appears from underneath it. Is is that what you understand is happening? Yeah, I picture like before it's like you're in the middle of the ocean, like everywhere you see on Earth is water and the sky is blue. Yeah. Right. And this is saying like you can push some of that ocean water to the side and create patches of dry land. That you can stand up on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's right. So the waters get concentrated in certain places 
that are now seas, and then the land shows up. One question that my students always ask me, and to which I do not have a great answer. I mean, I have my own answer, obviously, but I'm curious what mm. you think is, does God create the land here? Hmm. The waters get pulled together and the dry land appears. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it. What I don't know. What That's do you- also my answer is that the the sort of plain, you know, I'm a biblical literalist. Like I read everything, yeah. <laughs> everything as literally as possible. And uh, the literal reading of this text is that the land was there under the water. God pulled the waters down and the land appeared. And so yeah. God has sort of created the possibility that land could become habitable, whereas mm-hmm. previously it was just underwater, not mm-hmm. habitable by humans anyway. And so I think that, like, to me, that's right. There was, there was already land covered by these chaotic waters, and God has now organized the chaos in such a way that the dry land is available to people. Yeah, yeah, like creating space for the possibility of other things. Yeah. I have a question for you about day two. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. So, so we, we have this dome, we have the waters above the dome, we have the waters below the dome— there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Yeah. And it's not called good. Nothing called good. No, that's right. Why? <laughs> well, God's <laughs> going to call two different things good on day three. So God, like, God makes up for it. <laughs> God does make up for it. Yes. So the, the, the dry land is called good. And then the, the plants, the production of plants is also called good. I don't know. Yeah. It's a really interesting question what you're saying uh, about the lack of anything being called good on day two. The closest that I can come is in my my own sort of framework of the things that God made happen being the things called good. The only thing God really does on day two is put a dome in the sky. Mm. But I mean, that's not nothing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like I can't do that. So I I don't know. It's a curiosity of this text. You're right about that. Do Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I don't have my own thoughts about it. I have someone else's thought and then one observation. The other person's thought is belongs to Rashi, who's an 11th century Jewish interpreter. And he says, because God's not done with this work of separating water from water, like that carries over from day two to day three. I see. I see. You have to wait till you're done doing the thing. I like that. Before you can say it's good. So the first good of day three is also encompassing days, yeah. day two's goodness. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Way to go, Rashi. I like that. Yeah, right? That's That was good, You Rashi. should write a book. And, <laughs> and the other um, observation is just, we won't dig far into this, but the priestly source in general in this text and in the temple text is really lays it on real thick with patterns of seven. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting to me that like there's seven days and god says it was good seven times but it's not one time each day yeah like there's a real abiding commitment to the sevens (laughs) yeah that's so interesting and the 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 numerology of this text is fascinating and you Mm -hmm. know we don't have really time to get into it but the ways in which this text is structured with those repetitions and then also Mm -hmm. with like the the number of words in the passage like there's all kinds of you that, could go deep on deep, that. Deep, deep. Yeah, we need to. Mm-hmm. Ha- we just need to have us say a Jewish interpretation of Genesis one day. 
party. On the podcast. Yeah, let's do it. We're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) In our spare time. So on day three, we get the separation and the land appears. And then this, this, the role of the earth here uh, in verse 11, God says, let the earth put forth vegetation. And then in verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation. I just find that really interesting, the way that that is written. It's not like God plants trees on the earth, right? Mm -hmm. God doesn't dig a hole and put a seed in. It's that God beckons the earth to put forth vegetation. And then Mm -hmm. somehow, we don't really know how, the earth puts forth vegetation. Mm-hmm. What what do you do with that sort of the way that that story is is told creation of plants? I mean, it just it again reminds me so much of of the the patterns of speech in the description of the tabernacle. Like just as God commands, Moses does, and yeah. it, it repeats exactly like God said, "Do this," and they did this. Yeah. Like there's a there's a very you could call it satisfying. You could call it obsessive compulsive. Like, I, I, you know, a little of both. But in, I, I mean, I guess I hadn't thought that much about the mechanism by which it happens. I mean, I see it as the the earth is a creature of God in some ways. Like the earth is obedient to yeah. God's voice in a way that we might not think of inanimate objects being able to do. So, So it has the capacity for obedience to God's voice. I love that. And also, there is an an inherent creativity, creative mm-hmm. capacity in the earth. So mm-hmm. when God says, put forth vegetation, the earth has the capacity actually to do that. And yeah. so it seems like the relationship is God beckoning forth that which the earth has the capacity to do, but has not yet been able to do because it hasn't been called forth. You know, it's a character in the story who has yeah. creative capacity not by itself, but it ha- it has creative capacity that can be called forth by the God who is the creator. I love that. And I love it also in the way that we were talking about the, the pre-existing dry land, but the dry land couldn't do anything yeah. until sort of the situation was created such that it could function in this new way. And, and the idea of calling forth the land to, to produce vegetation, like that's that's what it needed yeah you know as opposed to this idea that like god is god as the creator is doing all the stuff and everyone else is a passive a passive part of it that you're right the the earth is called to do it and and it can yeah. because it's called so then you get this really interesting sort of notion in this text from the very beginning that god's way of creating i mean on the one hand like big and powerful like let there be light mm-hmm. and there was light but also part of the way God creates is to make the space in which other beings can mm-hmm. exercise their own creative power. Yes. That is beckoned forth by God's voice. I love yes. I love that way of reading this text. Yeah. Hi everyone. My name is Tom Harris and I'm the pastor of Govins Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm a Bible Worm supporter at the virtual worm level. Every week I get to begin my sermon preparation by listening to the Bible Worm episode for the upcoming text. I choose to listen to Bible Worm because the text-based interfaith dialogue between Bobby and Amy is so unique. I preach to a highly educated congregation who come to the text with diverse theological perspectives. So Bobby's and Amy's interfaith dialogue is a great primer. I also appreciate their passion for social justice and reading the text in light of contemporary social concerns. 
as a virtual worm supporter. I get to join Bobby and Amy and other pastors around the country for a monthly Zoom Bible study of upcoming texts before the episodes are recorded. This allows Amy and Bobby to be more in tune with some of the questions their listeners bring to the passage in their particular contexts. So I hope you'll consider becoming a supporter of Bible Worm. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. So thanks for listening. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so moving on to days four and five, I'm picking up in verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Okay, so day four, we get the creation of the lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. How, where would you start us thinking about the significance of that creation? I mean, the okay, so the first thing that comes to mind is just that it's not only the sun and the moon and stars, but it's like time. Yeah. <laughs> like, whereas before in this undifferentiated, whatever we want to call it, the mass of chaotic waters, there was, I don't know if there wasn't time or it was just there was no way to track time or to feel the passage of time. But this is like, this is like a whole other dimension. Yeah. <laughs> this feels really big. Yeah, no, I think like that is so important. And that the, and I think especially for Christian readers, I think who don't, mark time in quite the same way. Like our liturgical Mm -hmm. year is sort of connected to the life of Jesus Mm -hmm. more than it's connected to the movement of seasons. Mm -hmm. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's easy for readers like me to miss what you're pointing out there. But the reason the moon and the sun are there is to distinguish day from night. And the reason the stars are there is to show you what season it is, what time of the year it is, and what both like, are we supposed to be planting or harvesting? And right, right. what festival are we supposed to be celebrating? Yeah. I think that, I I, I love that. What do you think th- about the fact that plants come before the creation of the sun? <laughs> That's a really nice question. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, I think this sort of reaffirms the fact that we're not reading a scientific description of the beginning of the world. We're reading a sure, poetic. sure. Uh, maybe that goes without saying. I know it goes without saying to you. <laughs> um, no, but it's always worth saying. It's always worth saying. The other thing, one way some people have read this text is that days one through three are the creation of the environment. Days four through six are the population of those, populating of those environments. So first you get the heavenly realm created, and then you get the sky and seas created. 
then you get the dry land created, one, two, three. And then you get the celestial bodies on day four, and then you get the birds and fish on day five, and then you get the earth creatures Mm. on day six. Interesting. If you read the text, and then day seven stands outside of creation as the Sabbath day. If you read it that way, I mean, the only thing you would really do with that is to say that plants here are being understood as part of the, plants are part of the environment in a way that animals are creatures that populate the environment. Yeah. Not that plants don't have their own importance, right? Yeah. But it's a different kind. They're they're not creatures in the same way in this text as birds, fish, Mm -hmm. animals, and humans. They're not given Mm -hmm. a command other than like, they're not really given a command other than the earth is commanded to bring them forth. So that's what I do with this. What do you do with it? I mean, the other thing that occurs to me is that if you just, is I wonder if in a poetic way, it has anything to say about the relationship of sun to plants or the moon to the tide. Like it, it looks, and we would understand that the moon is controlling the tide, but here the water was there before the moon was there. And it just, it's sort of, I mean, I wonder if there's some polemic against the worship of celestial uh, stuff, you know, to say that it it may look like they have all the power and are really driving the train, but they weren't even there. Yeah. I think there's something to that. And I've not thought of that in terms of the plants quite, quite in the way that you've connected it here. But I have thought about that in terms of the conversation we were having earlier about the fact that there is light before there's a sun. Mm-hmm. And th- mm-hmm. then you say it's not that the sun is the god who gives you light. This is not mm-hmm. Shamash, the mm-hmm. Akkadian mm-hmm. sun god. This is just the sun. And God is the source of light. Yeah. I think you're right. The heavenly bodies here are timekeeping devices. They are not the yeah. they don't they don't make they're not good the source. Things. Yeah, yeah, they're not sources mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we get into the next day and we start creating um the swarms of creatures in the waters. Yeah. That, <laughs> like when I was reading through it this time, I was like, that's a weird move. Like all of a sudden I'm going <laughs> to, like, I'm going to, like, it just seems like you're reintroducing chaos into this lovely <laughs> yeah. system. You've just like cleared out all this space and now you want like creeping things. Like, yeah. why would you want creeping things? You just cleared out all this space. <laughs> yeah. And especially because the first <laughs> thing created is the great sea monsters. Which, yeah. <laughs> which it doesn't say the sea brought forth great sea monsters exactly. That's right. Well, it, God says, let the waters bring forth, but then it said God created the great sea That's monsters. Right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, and then we struggle with Leviathan all the way through in various ways through the Hebrew Bible. And you, yeah. I like that. You, could, you look at this moment and you think you could have just left that out. Yeah. I guess I would have made for a boring <laughs> That would be a terrible story. <laughs> Here's your empty sea. We wouldn't be here to read it. Yeah. I know. <laughs> But it, but it does make sense. This is one of those things where I, you know, you'll hear me say from time to time, and the Bible makes more sense if you read it from the ground up instead of the heaven down, which yeah. is the question like, why would God do that often runs you into a dead end. But the question, yeah. why would someone write a story in which God does that often opens up all kinds of things. So yeah. we do have a sea with all kinds of creatures in it. And we do have chaos in the seas that kind of scare people. And so mm-hmm. why is that? Well, here it is. God God created all that too yeah and then gives them the imperative to keep reproducing 
Yeah, so you know? here we have God giving the first instruction. I mean, God has sort of instructed, like, let there be light and instructed the earth mm-hmm. to bring forth. But here we get an actual command, like an ethic of living or something that God gives to the fish and the birds. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters. And uh, fish fill the waters, birds multiply on the earth. What do you make of that being the God's first command? I mean, in some ways, it, it stood out to me earlier when it talks about the creation of plants that it, it there's a lot of emphasis on seed-bearing plants. Yeah. Which yeah. to me just fits right in with this. Like there is a, a built-in mechanism or system or, I don't know, importance on the idea that I'm going to create the first ones of these, but then this system has to be able to keep itself going yeah i'm not going to you know create each individual one forever and ever amen so it makes sense i guess that that would be their really first and only imperative in this yeah in this text i think that's right and i think that relates back to what we were saying earlier about the earth being called to put forth its creative energy here in a not exactly the same way but in a similar way the fish and the birds are being called to be creators, like to pro- to to create life yeah. in the way that they are able to. They can't yeah. do it without God's empowerment and invitation, but but they can do it now on their own, yeah. and they're and they're told yeah. to. I'm just I'm really taken by this idea of the God who is like really the God on high, the God who is you know up in the heavens and speaking, but is also empowering parts of creation to really co-create like God's creating the new stuff, but then sort of like starts the plate spinning and then says, okay, you keep that one going and I'm going to start another one. That's right. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Terrence Fretheim did a lot of work on that idea within Genesis that God is a God who starts out seeking partnerships from the very beginning Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. is not exercising power independently, autonomously over, but inviting co-creators all all along the way from the earth to the birds and the fish now and we'll see we'll see it again yeah okay day six is a big day (laughs) especially for those of us who live on the land which is probably why this is my anthropocentric reading of genesis one it's all pointed toward me that's right and god said let the earth bring forth creatures of every kind cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind and it was so God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, so the first thing that happens 
on day six is that we get the land creatures. So we've got birds who are in the, the water above the land. We've got fish who are in the water around the land. Now we get actual population on the land. Mm-hmm. What do you notice in that sort of the creation of the wild animals and the domesticated animals and the creeping things? I mean, I'm interested in the way that the the text is sort of categorizing, you know, there are wild beasts and every kind of cattle. Yeah. I guess maybe I don't I don't know what kinds of cattle it's it's envisioning, but every kind. And then the creeping things. I just think those are interesting. That those are probably not the categories that I would use to cover all the land creatures on the earth, but it does a it does an okay job. Yeah, and you have paid a lot of attention in your scholarly work to the priestly author and the their way of mm. thinking about categories. Yeah. And it really is like this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg in terms of categories in the priestly sewers, <laughs> but but you're right. Yeah, it's actually very interesting to think about it in terms of like the priestly categories, like which one of these creatures could you would be kosher to eat yeah. or could be sacrificed or, you know, um, Stuff that this text is not talking about, but I suspect is in the mind of the priestly author. So at the end of that little bit of creation, we get another statement that God saw that it was good. So we have Mm -hmm. the goodness of the land creatures before humankind is created. That is stated. Itself good. Yeah. Yeah. Now then the creation of humankind, there's so many things in here. This Mm -hmm. passage is... Just, I mean, such a key passage in the Bible and so confusing. (laughs) Uh, There's just so many things. Yes, there's so many directions to take it. Yes. So I'm just going to try to pick a couple that maybe seem most interesting or at least most pertinent and then let you fill in if I miss something that you think is super really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you... You usually have something that I that I miss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Which is why we read together instead of just one of us reading this text. Yes, that's true. The first thing that everybody always wants to talk about is right at the very beginning in verse 26, let us make mm-hmm. humankind in our image according to our likeness. As far as we know, there is only one creature mm-hmm. in the world, right? Well, creature, one divine being in the world <laughs> right yeah. now. Who is the our in your understanding? I mean, my first answer is I don't know. My next answer is, you know, some kind of group of angels or lesser divine beings that are in some kind of divine council that God is talking with. And that for I don't know why, but for some reason, that question has never been a super compelling one to me. What do you do with it? Well, you know... In my mind, as a Christian reader of this text, you need to have an answer. Because if you don't have an answer, then it's going to be the Trinity, mm-hmm. which is a very fine Christianizing reading. Like, I, I don't mean to discredit that as right, a way of reading it as a Christian. What, you have to know what you're doing yeah. when you do that. So the yeah. our in Christian interpretation is usually understood as creator, spirit, Christ, which we already saw. You know, we already talked about the creator, the word, and the spirit, mm-hmm. the breath. So it's often read that way, you know, but then to go back and say, look, the author of this text was not a Trinitarian. And, and mm-hmm. so before, before it was a Trinitarian something, it was something else. Right. It meant something. Yeah. yeah. And so we can, you know, you can argue about which one of those is primary, secondary, whatever, but it's got to be something else. 
-hmm. To me, I think probably the most compelling is that this text is imagining not a true monotheism in which God is the only divine creature, but Mm -hmm. that there are lesser gods or angels, if you Mm -hmm. want to use that term, that just haven't been mentioned in the text. And so God is sort of consulting the other divine beings at this point. Yeah. To me, that seems fairly reasonable. The other thing that scholars sometimes notice is the word for God in this text is Elohim, which Mm -hmm. is plural in its Mm -hmm. grammatical appearance. And Mm -hmm. elsewhere, just a couple, normally it takes singular verbs, but there are places in the Hebrew Bible where it takes plural verbs. And so it could Mm -hmm. just be that that word Elohim is a little fluid in whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, grammatically speaking, singular or plural. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you know, that you mentioned maybe there are these other divine beings that just haven't been mentioned. This creation story doesn't tell us anything about God, like the nature of God, the origin of God, like who, what is this whole, this divine system that's sort of in the background here that like it's assumed to exist, but not really described. So, so what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Like it, it doesn't lay out, here's the deal. Yeah. (laughs) Which, by the way, is an interesting in comparison to like the Enuma Elish and other texts like that. Those are very much interested in theogony. Like, where do the gods yes. come from? This text yeah. has no interest in that whatsoever. God That's is right. and always has been as, as, as far as this text is concerned. That's right. That's right. The other bit of that verse, the creation of humankind in God's image and likeness. What do you take that to mean? Oh, I was going to ask you that question. (laughs) I mean, so the way that it is usually interpreted in communities that I have been a part of is that it has to do with the inherent dignity of every Mm. person. Mm -hmm. But in the context, and that, and I, I don't object to that reading. In the context of this story, what rises up for me is more about: is it something about the role? that humans are going to play because humans are about to be given like oversight of this yeah. whole system. Now it it is very theologically concerning yeah. <laughs> to me to say like humans are like God on earth, you know, but I, I, that is the first thing that rises to my mind reading this text and, and seeing the verse that will come in just a minute. Is that the idea of dominion? Is that is that where you're headed? Yeah, that's where I'm headed. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And in, in the ancient Near East, in the Mesopotamian texts, the the king is often referred to as being the image of God on earth. Yeah. So God's yeah. emissary carrying out God's functions on earth. And I think so. I think that's an entirely reasonable and, in my mind, maybe the best way of understanding this. And especially in in line with what you're saying, where they get the command in verse 26 and again in verse 28 to have Mm -hmm. dominion over the earth. That dominion, obviously, that's a royal kind of exercise of power, which we can talk about in just a second. Mm -hmm. But I think that's that's right. Human beings are being viewed here as sort of the image, the presence of God on the earth and given the capacity then to, to have dominion, to exercise God's power, which is an enormous responsibility. Like this, this text has a very high view, I think, of the role of humankind. The other thing that it's doing relative to the Babylonian texts say is it's not saying the king is God's representative, yes. it's saying humankind. So there's yes. sort of a democratization to, to yeah. use a anachronism, but it's a more general understanding that every person 
is in some way God's representative on the earth. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that comparison to the ancient Near East Virgin for that reason. We get in verse 27 the statement that God created humankind in God's image and that God created them male and female. Mm-hmm. There's a That verse has been used in all ki- kinds of ways. Is there anything about that that seems relevant to Bible-learn purposes? I mean, <laughs> I don't even know all the ways that, that that verse has been used. My first thought was that speaking of sort of from the perspective of a female that it seems more sort of egalitarian. It's not like the second creation story where first there's a man, but he's lonely. So they take part of his rib and make a little friend for him. And then I started thinking about folks who are non-binary or gender non-conforming and what it means to say male and female. But then as I read the sentence, male and female, God created them. That actually sounds like if you think of it as describing one person, male and female, God created. I know that's not how it's usually read, but it seems like there could be some fruit in there. Yeah, there's actually an ancient Jewish tradition, I think, that says that the first human beings were Mm -hmm. androgynous or multigendered. I don't know quite how you think about that. They were both male and female. And in that sense, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then in Genesis 2, they're separated into to the binary, but their nat- their natural kind of way of being is is non-binary, mm-hmm. which I think is really an interesting opening. And it's not that's this is not like a modern. No, like, that's a very ancient. Yeah. That, yes, that's mm-hmm. one of the many many <laughs> Jewish stories that come from this text. But yes, yes, yeah, that's got ancient roots. Now the command that human beings get then in verse twenty eight on the on the one hand we get the same command that the animals got be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth Mm -hmm. then we get additional commands and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing yeah and so human beings on the one hand have the same responsibility as animals which is to be fruitful on the other hand we've got this additional responsibility capacity which is stated in terms of subduing and having dominion. How do you think about that? Like if you were going to go and do whatever that is, because God said to do it, like what does that mean for us, do you think? So I will say on the face of it, it the, the, the verbs, at least the resonance of those verbs in English are very troubling. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the health of the environment right now as a result of our yeah. dominion. If I try to think of it in a more sustainable <laughs> sustainable way, I mean, I think it could really be a command to, you know, not to take responsibility yeah. for the well-being of the planet and not to sort of abdicate your responsibility and say, well, things are just going to happen. Like there, there are, you know, and I may be like pushing more into the second creation story now where it sort of pictures us as the friendly gardener yeah but but i think there's a there's a way to have to take that responsibility in a benevolent way and not a sort of power hungry i shall dominate the earth yeah like skeletor kind of way (laughs) skeletor (laughs) remember skeletor i do yeah i do yeah we're dating ourselves that's okay yeah (laughs) so I i feel like you i feel like you have better thoughts about that though 
No, I, I really like I really like I really like that. To me, those two verbs have very different resonances. The first one's subdue. The Hebrew there is kavash, which literally means to like put your foot on someone's neck or something like that. Like it's a it's a fairly yeah. violent word. Notice notably, the object of that verb is the earth, not the animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a small thing to notice. I mean, like, I don't know that the implications are huge, but it's not talking about this is how you treat animals. It's talking about this is how you treat the environment. Mm-hmm. I, in my mind, you know, the world of whenever this text was written, the 6th century BCE, 1st millennium BCE, wherever you want to place it, the earth was dangerous, right? It was it was wild. It was hostile a lot of times to human beings. There were droughts and wild animals and all kinds of things. And so this text, I think, is it's got a little bit of an aggressive idea about what the relationship of human beings is to the earth, maybe for mm-hmm. that reason. And mm-hmm. so modern people saying, well, we no longer, like now the danger runs in the opposite direction, right? We are a yeah. danger to the environment. So we need to rethink what that means. The other verb that's there, to have dominion, in my mind, as I mean, you can think of, you know, even historical examples of the different ways that people, kings have and queens, have exercised dominion in human history. And there are some benevolent ways of exercising dominion, and there are some tyrannical ways of it. And so this doesn't really specify. But one imagines that what's being said here, especially after the image and likeness bit previously, is that human beings... I think, as you were saying, ought to exercise dominion over the earth in the ways that God would exercise dominion over human beings, right? We, 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 mm-hmm. want, we want to be exercisers of good authority, not tyrannical mm-hmm. authority. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this passage is connected to Psalm 72, where God, where there's a prayer for the king, and the, the prayer is that God might have you exercise dominion, which looks like defending the poor, delivering the needy, crushing the oppressor. It's a, it's a very much a looking out for the common good kind of a way. Mm-hmm. So maybe mm-hmm. we could read it that way. I'm not sure exactly what the text intended us to read. Uh, yeah. what, I mean, we never know, really. But I think there is an opening here to read it as, as we should be good stewards. Mm-hmm. We have responsibility to be good stewards of the, of the environment. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Power and responsibility. There's obviously there's a lot more that one could say uh, about this little bit of the text. But the one thing that's always stuck out to me is God does not describe the creation of human beings as good. But in verse 31, God says, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. So human beings are not singled out as good, but human beings are sort of caught up in the goodness of the whole of mm-hmm. creation. Mm-hmm. Any, any thoughts about that? You know, it's interesting. Jewish interpretation on this really focuses on, so focuses on the idea that, that all of creation is described as very good and this awareness that, that humans have all kinds of flaws. Yeah. <laughs> and like, is it possible that those flaws are sort of are are included in that goodness, mm. you know, and what are the ways that our, whatever, our greediness might motivate us to work harder or our jealousy might motivate us to, you know, mm. whatever, like things that there's nothing in creation that is purely bad. Yeah. 
Um, but that doesn't really answer your question about why humans are not singled out as good. To me, the sort of environmentalist way of reading that is to say uh, this text is reluctant to describe human beings as good in and of ourselves. But our goodness lies in our proper relationship to the environment to which we are inherently connected and over which we've been given dominion. And mm-hmm. so to the extent that we exercise dominion in ways that are productive and, and good for the whole of creation, we're part of that goodness. Mm-hmm. But we should not think that just because we were given that task that whatever we do is good. Right. We, yeah. We're only good in that proper connection. Yeah. I can imagine some way of thinking about, in some ways, balancing out the power that humans are given by withholding, withholding the praise at that moment. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. to work for it a little harder. Okay. That brings us to the seventh day, which is picks up in chapter two, verse one. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Bobby, why is the rest part of the story? God doesn't create anything on this day. Yeah. Haha, I asked you before you, you did. asked me. <laughs> no, I was thinking <laughs> as I was reading, you know, like, I think that, you know, the fact that the the scribe who divided these chapters divided it at the end of day six makes sense to me from the perspective of a, you know, a modern productivity driven person. Like it's done at the end of chapter, chapter one, but it Mm -hmm. isn't. And in fact, the whole thing seems to kind of be pushing towards the seventh day of rest, the Sabbath day. And if you follow that structure that I was talking about earlier with three days to create the environment, three days to populate it, then the seventh day sort of lies outside of that structure mm-hmm. as it's kind of its mm-hmm. own thing to which everything has been pointed. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I mean, and you know, you, the priestly author is going to follow up on this in the in the Ten Commandments in yeah. Exodus 20. We see this theme repeated over and over again that rest is important and rest is part of what the world needs for people, for animals, for the land, for plants. And so lest we miss it, which we do by dividing the chapter in the wrong place, mm-hmm. but lest mm-hmm. we miss it, work is not the only thing there is. That the God's act of creation is six sevenths work, uh, but that one that one seventh is is the crowning achievement maybe uh, of the whole thing. How do you read that? The pointing toward Sabbath. Well, first I just have to tell you because I think it's kind of funny. There's a note in my um, in my Bible which I'm reading of the the Etz Chaim today, which is at another sort of Jewish commentary. And it says, the division of the Torah into chapters is a late development by non-Jewish authorities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Jews would never have divided the chapter here. I just think that's No, really I think funny. that's exactly right. And I think that's <laughs> a, a fair note and probably an important one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's making me think about, again, sort of this idea of, of when you create something all of that creation is sort of pointless if you don't also build into the system time to just sort of be with that creation Mm. and appreciate that creation and let it exist without continuing to mess with it constantly. Yeah. And that is, that is very hard for at least modern humans to do, I think. 
But I also think about, you know, the climax of a lot of other creation stories are about building a temple. And the idea that we don't get a temple at the end of the story, we get Shabbat. Yeah. And there's a, a Jewish philosopher named Abraham Heschel who talks about the Sabbath as sort of like a palace in time, like a, a temple in time. Yeah. That you you have created something magnificent and it is set aside and it's holy, but I mean, but it's kind of a wild idea that we can that we can imbue time with yeah. the kind of holiness that a palace or a temple would have. But I feel like that's that's what this is doing. In I love way. that. And so to go all the way back to the beginning where you were saying that in other ancient Near Eastern cultures that palace is often or the temple is often built to sort of subdue the power of chaos from reentering into the world. Yeah. Then Sabbath sort of takes on that role. Like the observance of the Sabbath is the thing that keeps the world from coming undone, or at least it's one of the things. Would, would right, you it's there? like the brick on the sewer cover. Yeah. Like you have to have something on there. Yeah. It's just a huge statement. It's not <laughs> just you should take a day off to rest. Yeah. It's like cosmically yeah. this is necessary. The world will come apart if you don't rest. Yeah. 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 I love that. And the other thing you were making me think is like God also pauses at the end of, you know, God does a thing on a day and says, mm-hmm. that's good. And then there's yeah. evening and morning, right? So there's a night. Well, mm-hmm. God could have worked into the night or through the night, but God doesn't. God pauses mm-hmm. at the end of most every day, says it's good, starts up again in the morning. And then there's yeah. a day of rest at the end. So there's actually rest kind of spread out through this yeah. text, although it's not quite named in that way. Uh, but there is a there is an invitation, and not just an invitation, but I think what you're pointing to is an urgency about rest as being the thing that keeps yeah. the world functioning as it should. Right, things have to kind of gel a little bit. You can't just, yeah, it can't be constantly in motion. I love that. So we've kind of headed, I think, toward thinking about what this text might have to say to people like us in a time like this. Uh, but where would you go interpreting this text? for the current moment. I keep thinking back to our our observations of all the different ways in which God is creating but also is just sort of like pushing things to the side to create space for other things to happen. Yeah. There's this there's an idea in Judaism called Tzimtzum. There's actually a story, one of the many stories about about this creation story that in the beginning, God's presence was so big and filled the cosmos so completely that there couldn't be anything created. And so God had to sort of like tighten God's own proverbial belt, like suck it in a little bit. Like if you want to create space for for anything else to happen and God does. Mm. But I don't think I had quite seen it as clearly in this story until this reading through the extent to which there is there are other creative forces happening and God is enabling those things to happen by by putting in boundaries you know by saying you need to stay over there so that something else can happen here and it just it makes me think about you know the forces of chaos is a little bit of a dramatic statement for it i think but it thinking about congregational life the ways in which if if we just let things unfold however they will whose voices and whose needs become sort of clear and dominant and you know can sort of overtake the direction of the community 
And who's do we not hear? And it, it's really yeah. difficult as community leaders, I think, to hold boundaries and try to create space for other people and and tell people to to stand back for a moment to see if anyone else wants to take the floor. But I don't know that that's thinking about that and thinking about God as an artist. Yeah, are um are the th- two things that are rising up for me right now. I love that. I love that. My spouse and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about the tendency people have to add, like try to make things better by adding things to what they do. Mm. And mm-hmm. that some of the greatest things, like uh, the example was a balance bike. My daughter rides a balance bike. Do you know Do you know about a balance bike? It's like a yeah, yeah. bike that has no, it doesn't have no pedals. pedals right? So she learns yeah. how to ride. And then she knows, hopefully doesn't ever have to have training wheels. But that yeah. was an example of something that was improved by taking something away that seemed necessary. Mm-hmm. And that kind of reminds me of what you're saying about the like the need to kind of cut back sometimes in order to let other things to let happen. yeah to let other things open up that the last bit of what we read in verse 3 of chapter 2 it ends with so it if you translate it literally it's very awkward you should not trans, translate it literally but it says something like on on it on the day God ceased from all God's work, which God created to do, which yeah. <laughs> don't translate it that way because yeah. it's, it's a big mess. But Jewish tradition seizes on the fact that it ends with like God created to do what God did was create something for us to do. Oh. Like that we are active I co-creators yeah. in in the next step. And we have a big to-do list. And I don't know, this this story just opens up so many ways in which we and the earth around us and the creatures around us are continuing the work of creation. I love that. I love where you ended there. And to, and to me, that's kind of where my head goes in this text is thinking about what's the role of human beings in, in our relationship mm. to the world that we live in mm-hmm. and kind of that bigger picture. And you're pointing to, you know, this text in which God is an artist and God is a creator, but God is also an empowerer of the creative mm-hmm. capacity of others. And it's not not just humans and maybe not even mainly humans, but all the way from the beginning where the earth is empowered to call forth plants and she calls forth plants and the animals are given commands and people are invited to reproduce and also to share dominion with God. Like this is a world of creative capacity, Mm -hmm. which is at its best when the creativity of others, both human others and non-human others is called forth and nurtured rather Mm -hmm. than being beaten down. Yeah. And so when we got to the end and we were reading about, you know, what does it mean to have dominion over the earth? Well, I mean, you can just look at this text and the way that God exercises dominion in the creation process, which is to create space for other things to to live and do and like be abundant. Yeah. 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 And so if that's what that means for us, then our task ought to be finding ways to call forth the creative capacity of each other, making space for other people, but also mm-hmm. recognizing the creative capacity of animals, the creative capacity of the earth, and instead of exploiting it for our own good, mm-hmm. to say, hey, the whole of creation is better off if we figure out how to help the earth thrive, how to help the plants thrive, how to help the animals and the fish, and even the creeping things, how to help mm-hmm. all those things thrive. And so I think there's a real call here for human beings to rethink the way that we relate to the earth and to other Mm -hmm. creatures on the earth. 
Yeah. And I love what you were saying at the end of our conversation, which is embedded in that is Sabbath. And so we sometimes get caught up in productivity is the only thing. And to Mm -hmm. say rest is, rest is actually the main thing in this Mm -hmm. text. And Mm -hmm. if you take time to rest, you will exercise your dominion differently, I think might be true as well. It's so interesting. I feel like people often think of the priestly writer, I often think the priestly writer as being so sort of obsessed with like structure and formality and boundaries and separating that it feels really like not creative, like really rigid. But I think this story really opens up a way in which like sometimes you you need boundaries and formality so that creativity can happen within a certain sphere and so that more creative voices, for lack of a better word, can can enter the yeah. picture. Yeah, no, I love yeah. I love that. I love that. All right, Amy, oh. episode one, season three. In the books. In the books. <laughs> Uh, it's fun to be talking with you again. I I really missed Bible Worm over the summer. Like I was glad for the break. I'm not gonna lie. Um, yeah. But yeah. I'm glad to be back talking with you about biblical texts. Next week we're in Genesis 21 and 22, which is the story of the culmination of the promise of Isaac to Abraham, and then the very next story is the command for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Dun, da, da, da. One of the hardest texts to know what to do with in the whole Bible, if you ask me, but I'm glad we get I to know. tackle it. I, I, and it's the text that we read at Rosh Hashanah, like the oh, yeah. Jewish New Year, the High Holy Days. So um, there is much, much wrestling with this text. Well, that's good, because I think Christians, by and large, avoid this text as much, as much as we can. Or else we say, hey, look, he's carrying his own wood, and that sounds like Jesus. Like, Which, I mean, fair mm-hmm. enough. But there's a lot more that one that one can do. And so I'm looking forward yeah. to talking about that. Yeah, with you. that sounds great. All awesome. Right. See you next I'll time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Sarah Strong, Ann Apple, and Wes Dunbar. Join us next week when we'll be discussing Genesis 21, 1-3, and 22, 1-14 story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Until then, keep on digging.